This is First You Hustle, a podcast from the Columbus College of Art and Design meant to help students and budding creative professionals put their expertise to use. Jordan Bell. Today we're talking about getting things started. That creative idea in your head or creative service you want to bring to market. How do you do that? You really need to spend time focusing on very detailed, specific steps within those big picture ideas. That's one of today's guests. My name is Elaine Grogan Luttrell, and I'm the department head for business and entrepreneurship at CCAD. We'll go through a quick checklist of things every entrepreneur should consider when getting started. Then we'll see hustle in action. I'm Alex Bandar, founder and CEO of the Columbus Idea Foundry. And some of the lessons and best practices that has allowed a seed of an idea to sprout into a model co-working and innovation hub. And I told our first commercial realtor, this was my plan, this is what I was doing. And he's a great guy, Marvin Katz, we still work together today. And he said, uh, what's wrong with making a buck? And I thought, you know what? Nothing. And then we'll wrap up with another local designer and entrepreneur Will Nickley and hear about his adventures in finding design work. So this was sort of like a an alternative. If we want to stay in our field, we're going to have to make up our own work for this kind of stuff and, and do this hustle. Welcome back to another episode of First You Hustle. Before we get into today's topic, a little housekeeping. We're now on many different channels, and I encourage you to subscribe wherever you find it easiest to keep up with us. We're on Stitcher, Google Music Play, we're on iTunes and Podbean. You can also find our episodes posted on our Facebook page, facebook.com slash firstyouhustle, and the CCAD YouTube channel, youtube.com slash ccadedu. When we launched, we released our first three episodes immediately, and this is our fourth installment. If you haven't already, do go back and listen to our conversations with employers and alumni about the pitch, the application process, and talking through your portfolio. Questions or comments are always welcome, and you can use our Facebook page to send us a message. We have a packed show for you today. Three guests are going to attempt to maybe kind of think about possibly scratching the surface on entrepreneurship, freelancing, or any other situation where you are essentially being employed by you. This topic can, and in some places is, an entire degree that you can get, an entire series of lectures or workshops all of its own, or at a bare minimum, it is at least a topic that requires more time than this single episode. Listen in, think about how you can get started implementing your creative ideas and ambition, and then use your network, the career services office, classes available to you, and all of the many resources at your fingertips to drill down even deeper. To get us started, I'm here with Elaine Grogan Luttrell, the head of our business and entrepreneurship department at CCAD, and we're going to go over five, just five, things that you can do to get started. Elaine, thanks a lot for joining us. Thank you so much for having me, Jordan. I am so excited to talk about this topic because I think our students have tremendous opportunities to monetize the skills that they have, and freelancing is a great way to do that. And it's also a great way to exercise some creative muscles throughout their time at school and then also beyond. So I was so excited to kind of break this down into five really simple things people could do as they are starting their own creative businesses, whatever that might mean to them. So the first 
thing is to start with yes. I think sometimes we get so worried about knowing exactly what we want to do, we forget that at the beginning of starting a business or any kind of creative endeavor, you want to just say yes to a lot of different things. That means going to the different networking events, maybe exploring potential opportunities with clients or other people you meet. Now, it also means that not everything is going to be a really good fit. But early on, especially as you're growing your business, your default answer should be yes, while you figure out exactly what it is that you like to do and you want to do more of. And that's actually the number two tip to be really, really clear about what you do and what you don't do. And sometimes it's easy to get distracted because sometimes opportunities present themselves and they're not exactly what we want to do. But if there's money attached, sometimes we just go ahead and say yes to them, especially early on. If you're not completely certain, it's not something you want to do. But as you continue to grow and evolve your business, it's really important that you become very clear on specifically what you like to do, what you want to do, and what you don't want to do. So that means means if you're an illustrator, right, then you can illustrate editorial cartoons, someone can ask you to do some roughs for a logo, someone might ask you to do some medical textbook illustrations, right? And early on, you might say yes to lots of the different freelance gigs that fall into those kind of categories. But you might realize you hate doing medical illustrations, and it's the worst thing ever, and the editor is horrible to work with, and you never want to do that again. And that's okay, right? So you become really clear on what you do and what you don't do in a freelance context. And is there some sort of listening to the market there where if the things that you ideally do want to do, you just can't monetize and you're not able to find any opportunities where you can say yes, then you should maybe lean back on the things that are saying yes. So does that affect how you uh, maybe workshop what it is you're offering? Yes, absolutely. Um, And the students who have taken my class know that I call exactly what you just described a portfolio career. So the idea that you can do a lot of different things, and sometimes those things are exactly what you want to do, and they're the most fulfilling thing ever. And that's your starring role in a portfolio career. But you can also have a lot of different ways to monetize your creativity with things that are not directly associated with your starring role, but maybe they make use of some of the same skills. Those are supporting cast roles, and they're really effective to give your starring role some room to breathe so that you can wait to let those relationships kind of evolve organically, because it takes a long time sometimes to monetize exactly what you want to do or to build a following or to kind of develop those client relationships. So if you can do something related to your starring role, but not exactly the same thing, that can give your starring role some room to breathe. And then the third category, of course, is production assistance work. But that's the work that's temporary, repeatable, and stable. And that's not part of your freelance career necessarily. That's your day job. We want to focus on the other stuff. Great. So say yes, but also be true to what you want to do. What's number three? Number three is to get specific and then even more specific. A lot of times when I'm working with students, sometimes they'll have kind of big picture ideas of what they want to do. And then they might have an idea like, I need to form an LLC, or I need to update my website, or I need to post more on social media, right? All of those things are 
may be true, maybe things you should be thinking about doing. But in order to be successful as a freelancer, you need to get very, very specific. What does it mean to form an LLC? Which form do you have to fill out with the state of Ohio? How do you have articles of organization? Is the name you want to use available, right? All of those things are kind of sub-steps within this idea that I want to form an LLC or something like that. And the same is true on social media. How often are you going to post on social media? What's the target audience? Are you going to be engaging with others or promoting posts and scheduling posts out, right? It's great to have these big picture ideas about the things you need to do when it comes to marketing and protecting yourself and managing your cash and all the other aspects of running a business. But you really need to spend time focusing on very detailed, specific steps within those big picture ideas. And that's an area where I see a lot of creative people really suffer because it's hard to get to that level of specificity and detail, especially if some of the vocabulary is unfamiliar to you or you're not entirely sure what this thing might be or how much time and energy you want to invest in it. And is there a signal that it might be a good time to do some legal things like LLCing? Is that a dollar amount or a client load amount? What's the signal that like, oh, this is now getting to the point that it needs to be formalized as a business? Yeah, that's a great question. Um, when it comes to a tax reporting standpoint, anytime you're doing something in a professional capacity, that's technically formalizing it as a business. You just happen to be a sole proprietor instead of forming a separate entity type like an S corporation or an LLC. And I wish there were a magic rule that at a certain dollar threshold, you would need to form something. But really, it comes down to how much legal protection do you think you need? Because the benefit of having a type of formal legal entity structure is that you can protect your own personal assets a little bit more. Now, is that the first freelance gig you'll ever do? Probably not. But if it becomes kind of a regular thing, and you have the intention of growing it or continuing to do it in a formal capacity, then you probably want to explore the pros and cons of having a separate entity or paying for your own liability insurance. Also worth noting, anytime you hire someone or collaborate with someone, that's definitely a red flag that you need to be thinking about an entity type because those are situations where you can very quickly put your personal assets at risk. Great. Getting specific. Okay, what's number four? Number four, master the money. Now, those of you who know me well know I could spend the entire podcast talking about money in the arts because I love talking about money in the arts. But what I've noticed is that creative entrepreneurs struggle with three big things when it comes to money. The first is how to price their work or their time effectively. The second is managing irregular cash flow because not all clients want things on a predictable schedule. And then the third thing is managing your taxes. So the sooner you get really good at being mindful and intentional about your pricing strategy, managing irregular cash flows and your taxes, the easier it will be to master all aspects of your financial health. And this can be a real challenge, especially early on as you're first starting a business when you might not have any experience on what to charge for something, right? So your pricing strategy might be whatever the client offers you. But as you continue to get more experience and you continue to understand how much time something takes you to complete and the real value of what you're doing relative to your competitors and the value your customers perceive in what you do, it becomes a little bit easier to develop a pricing strategy with a bit more intention. And of course, budgeting is the best way to connect the pieces between the taxes that you pay at the end 
your income taxes and your employment taxes, but then also that irregular cash flow when clients don't pay on time or when you have a really busy season during a particular month and then not so much to do during another month. And then, of course, your pricing strategy. Do you have any recommendations on resources, specifically maybe for pricing, uh, how someone can start to learn about how do you value your product? Yeah, absolutely. So the first thing you should do uh, is probably come and talk to me (laughs) because I love having these conversations with students. Um, And so to the extent that you can develop the resources around you in your faculty members and your potential clients and then others in the field. So the students who maybe graduated a few years ahead of you who have some more experience, those are all great resources to tap into. But when it comes to pricing specifically, you want to get a good sense on the costs that go into whatever it is you're doing. And we're talking about direct costs, so supplies, materials, software subscriptions, hardware, all of those things, but also your indirect costs like maintaining your website and any liability protection you have, like we were talking about earlier with some insurance insurance or the cost of forming an LLC or something like that. All of those indirect costs go into the cost of running your business as well. So once you have a really good handle on what costs you need to cover, that essentially tells you the absolute minimum you can charge for your work to basically cover your costs. From there, it's about understanding what the market landscape looks like. So what are your competitors charging for something similar or something even not so similar, right? If a client perceives it as being a comparable thing. And for your customers, what are they willing and able to pay for whatever it is you're doing, right? Do they perceive huge value in it? Do you bring a very specific skill set? Or do they think it's just kind of a little extra something that there's that maybe isn't really super crucial to the core of what they do as a business? And then the last thing, of course, is what makes you special as an artist? What are your true competencies? Is it related to your professional experience or your education or your technical abilities or your professionalism, the ability to deliver something on time in a professional way when asked? All of those things are part of your competencies, and that's where the real value of what you deliver is. So when it comes to pricing, you always want to cover at least your costs, direct and indirect. You want to have an insight into the market. So what are your competitors doing and what value do your customers perceive in your work? And lastly, what do you bring to the table? What things make you special? And how can you articulate those both through your pricing strategy and through conversations you might have with others? Awesome. So as much as you might not want to, a little financial literacy is number four. What's number five? Number five is maybe the most important, although taxes and money is probably pretty important too. Number five is to take time for the business. It's so easy to focus on the aspects of running a business that we love, the creative part, working in your studio, diving into a new project, updating your website, doing something really exciting that feels creative. But it is just as important to dedicate some time every single week to maintaining the administrative tasks that go along with running a business as well. And these are things that are not nearly as exciting as working in your studio, but they're just as important. Are you updating your financial records? Are you making sure to follow up with clients? Have you billed your clients for work that you've performed? If they haven't paid, have you followed up with them? Are you scheduling out social media posts? Are you updating your website and maintaining your artist statement or your CV? What are all those administrative things you're doing on a regular basis and making sure that you commit time to doing them every single week means you won't fall behind on any of them. 
And some of these things, are they things you can plan ahead before you hit the ground running? Or is most of it you got to kind of uh, build it as you're build the plane as you're flying it, as they say. Yeah, a little bit of both. Um, definitely, when it comes to running a creative business, there is a little bit of building the plane as you're flying it, right? Because you're learning so much with everything you say yes to, and with every new project, and with every new thing you learn. But you can build some of these things in advance. You probably have kind of a big picture idea of what you do and don't like to do, and you probably have a pretty good handle on your time and your calendar. So you can dedicate a few hours every single week to the administrative side of your business. And that's when you can start thinking about these things and updating those plans and sort of filling in the details of that big picture business strategy to an actually specific executable business plan. Great. So now we got five tips if someone's thinking about starting a business for themselves, going out freelancing, this is the place to start. And now they know where they can go and get a little bit more information on that. We are so lucky to live in Columbus, which is a city that is full of resources for entrepreneurs. Um, Certainly, if you have sort of a technology interest, Rev1 Ventures is a great place to go for some startup resources. Um, Wild Goose Creative has a business of art series the first or second Monday of every month that's tremendous. It's a great place to go for some business basics and also to meet other artists who might be doing something similar. Um, ECDI and Social Ventures are both local groups that serve emerging creative entrepreneurs. And of course, the small Business Administration is a wonderful place to go for some basic resources as well. So all of those places can be starting points. Now, not everything you read will apply perfectly to you, but if you can get a little bit of basic information from a variety of sources, you can figure out what does and doesn't apply to your own reality. Thanks a lot for joining us. My pleasure. Thank you so much for having me. In this day and age, the term foundry most likely refers to co-working space. It's a common way cities and groups identify an organization that brings people and ideas together. But the word foundry originally intended to mean the creating of metals, like blacksmithing. Alex Bandar, the founder of the Idea Foundry, which is self-described as a place where anyone can explore their urge to make things, has managed to build one organization that inhibits both spirits of the word. The Idea Foundry is a place where you can go to Metalsmith or Ideasmith, which is the best way I can think of describing the wide variety of things they have happening under their roof. Located just outside the downtown area of Columbus in Franklinton, on a street off the main drag, you can escape most of the static city noise, and you'll suspect not much of anything is happening in the neighborhood, at least not right now. Franklinton is on top of an underground volcano of urban development and the warning signs are clear. It's ready to explode. Construction looms on all sides of the Idea Foundry with lane closures, parking lots being torn up, and a nearby mixed-use development pokes shallowly into the flat cityscape of the neighborhood. Outside, things sounded quiet. Inside was a different story. Alex took me around the Idea Foundry to give me a sense of the space. If I've ever wanted to be in a classic Aaron Sorkin walk and talk, this was my chance. Alex has energy. He's tall. He has a firm handshake that'll warmly extend with a big smile and a voice made for public speaking. I scurry behind him to keep up as he walks me through the first level of the building, mostly co-fabbing space where artists can reserve tables by the day, week, or month, 
and metalsmith, woodwork, or do digital projects as well. Going from the shop space, we duck into a classroom with digital design equipment, down a hallway with offices, we're briefly outside, and then it's up to the next level. There are long benches and tables that are filled with people and their laptops. It's unclear whether they are working together or independently, but either way, they are definitely co-working, out in the open, next to a stage area which will later host a fashion show that night. Around the corner, two caterers wait outside a boardroom seminar-type space where currently the dress code is all business. In each nook is a station, and likely a person, whether they're there for co-working or metalworking, woodworking, 3D printing, creating video games. There's even a space to leash your dog while you grab your coffee in the cafe. The place is busy. It's diverse with ideas, spaces, and equipment, the common element being the drive and energy to create. From the outside, tall grass pokes through the concrete, and you don't have to wait long to cross the street. When you enter the building, you'd think this all sprang up overnight, but you'd be mistaken. I deeply underestimated how long this marathon would be. Uh, you know, I joke, you know, Willie Nelson was a 20-year overnight success. Uh, we're a 10-year-old startup, and only after like uh, we gained success in the last year or two, and people notice us, oh, wow, yeah, you guys really blew up. No, it was it was a 10-year slog, uh, and now we're only still just coming into our own. As impressive as the space and people that occupy it may be, this all had to come from somewhere. Alex talked about how the concept hit him, and then more importantly, how he worked to make it happen. So I was that uh, that geeky kid who was inspired by visions of uh, sci-fi movies uh, where you know robots could do our bidding, machines made nearly anything we wanted automatically, and software was more than just a fancy Excel spreadsheet. It could actually do some decision-making for us and be a little artificially intelligent. And with that suite of interesting resources, humans can be freed up to be purely ideators. You know, I think we're very bad computers, but we're pretty good thinkers. So the more that lets us just say, make that happen, um, I think the better off all of us would be. The more innovation will flower across the planet. Uh, and the corollary there is that innovation and technology is generally good for people, uh, you know, making more with less. Um, so went to school for 100 years um, and uh, studied all the things and eventually settled on materials science and engineering. Was really interested in making new materials because it occurred to me that you can design uh, a 10-mile high skyscraper or an airplane with a mile-wide wingspan, but you can't build it because it just breaks. Uh, so I thought, well, let's make a stronger steel or more conductive copper. Um, and that would be like adding another color to the palette that all the other engineering disciplines were painting with. And you've really expanded the design envelope that people can create objects from. Um, but ironically, I painted myself into a corner insofar as I became a computational metallurgist, which is a great way to stop conversations at parties, uh, and uh, eventually came to work for a company here in Columbus, uh, a spin-out from Battelle. And I wrote software for the uh, manufacturing industry, so it was all virtual. So I had companies from Apple to the Defense Department, but everything I did was uh, in the computer. And uh, my sister, while I pursued engineering metallurgy, she became an artistic metalsmith and a professor of jewelry and sculpture up in Vermont. One year she invited me to give a guest lecture to her art students saying, hey, you know about heat and beat. You know what happens when you heat steel up and forge it, or heat silver and smith it. Why don't you teach my art students this? And so I had a new PhD and a giant ego, and I thought, yeah, okay, I can teach her artists to be practical. And I get there, and in a heartbeat, I realize not only can I teach them nothing useful, they're all much better machinists and welders and blacksmiths than I. Uh, so I was 
very, <laughs> very embarrassed uh, and very envious that if I had an idea, maybe I could write a computer program about it. If she or her artist students had any ideas, they just made the damn things. So I didn't want to go back to college to learn 3D design. Uh, 3D printers were just coming on the market at an affordable grassroots rate. Um, didn't want to go back to school to learn welding, but I desperately wanted to do those things. And that's when I realized that YouTube is essentially the world's university now. Uh, you can learn nearly anything from art history to artificial intelligence, uh, all for free, legally. And uh, open source design software meant you can design things legally for free. Uh, digital prototyping resources like laser cutters, 3D printers, computer controlled routers make making easier so you don't need to apprentice for years like my sister did before you can create something of value. Uh, and crowdfunding means that if you've got a camera on your cell phone, a halfway decent sense of humor, and a good idea, you can pitch a three minute video to the world and the world will reward you. Uh, this has been a very heartening reality to know that a good idea actually can gain traction if you get, its, uh, get the word out. So the only bottleneck to actually taking an idea out of your head and holding it in your hand uh, against that backdrop of free information, free design tools, digital resources uh, that make things for you and crowdfunding is access to those tools, uh, access to a friendly and talented community of people to help you turn the crank on that whole process, how to use them, and then a clubhouse to call your own. And I think that's the heart of any maker space, certainly the heart of what we do here. Uh, so I rented a small garage, made a website, um, threw some tools in and uh, threw the door open. And uh, I missed the mark initially on what, what people wanted. You know, I didn't do what a conventional business person does. I didn't do a market research study. I didn't write a business plan, um, but uh, did attract a host of folks who wanted to make things. And um, that, that, uh, that is where we gained our traction and really kind of uh, took off. What were the things that clued you in on what it should be once you opened? Yeah, so originally, um, I really wanted to be the center of a ring of schools, K-12 schools, that didn't have machine shops, welding shops, wood shops, or the modern incarnations, you know, laser cutter, 3D printer. Um, but uh, 10 years ago, the maker movement wasn't on the radar of the you know K-12 community. Our shop was uh, insufficient. It was hazardous, dark, dusty, dangerous. So the educational angle wasn't working, but the small business and creative community said, we want a clubhouse, we want to hang out uh, and, uh, and congregate and share tips and tricks. So um, thankfully, just by advertising and by getting the word out, uh, we'd attracted a blacksmith, Adlai Stein. He was actually a paralegal at the time, but has been an amateur, and I mean that in the, uh, in the affectionate um, definition of that word, uh, blacksmith for 20, 25 years. So he wanted to teach blacksmithing. He wanted to bring his equipment. Uh, we had a jeweler who said, hey, I want to teach jewelry classes. Um, had a person who did welding. Um, she came and said, hey, I want, to, I want to teach welding and I want a space to weld as well. So once you raise your flag and say, uh, this is where you make stuff, <laughs> I think you attract people who are talented, disciplined, sociable, want to pay it forward. Uh, and it was a no-brainer to say, okay, what do you want to do here? Let's make that happen. How do you figure out if what I'm doing is needed? Well, first off, will people pay you for it? <laughs> if no one's paying, uh, then, uh, then you have to ask whether you're providing a value. And about 10 years ago, uh, I thought we would be an educational 501c3. And I told our first commercial realtor, this was my plan, this is what I was doing. And he's a great guy, Marvin Katz. We still work together today. And he said... Uh, What's wrong with making a buck? 
And I thought, you know what? Nothing. Uh, especially if you're effecting a socially forward mission in an economically sustainable manner, you win. So uh, we said, well, let's make this a for more than profit, uh, a social enterprise or a business with heart, uh, and offer affordable skills and resources and services uh, to pretty much anyone. And if people are paying, then we'll expand that service. So there is a kind of microcosm of a free market economy happening under our roof. If people aren't paying for us, then we're not providing a service they want, so we better figure out what they do want. And social media, frankly, allows us the capacity to have these vast two-way conversations. And we can talk to a thousand people, and a thousand people can talk back to us. So we have our ear to the ground in that regard, but honestly, it's it's small minority of folks who proactively say, I want this. Uh, I think more the public reacts to what we want to do, and increasingly we have the confidence to say, you know what, I think this will sell. I think drone races are great. No one asked us if we wanted drone racing. Like the Steve Jobs model, I think the market doesn't always know what it wants until you show it. Let's talk about acquisition, because I really want to get into the nuts and bolts of someone that's like, all right, I want to do this. Uh, I think people need to know when do you jump, and then how far do you jump? Yeah, so often people come to us and they say, hey, uh, Alex, I want to make a makerspace like you did. And I said, no, no, you want to do it a whole lot smarter than I did. Uh, And I'm a uh, socially liberal guy, bean-eating Yankee from Boston. I'm actually quite conservative financially, so never really wanted to spend a buck I didn't have. And as an engineer with a very niche degree in computational metallurgy, I was lucky to have a pretty secure and pretty high-paying engineering job for about 10 years. Uh, And I could take my disposable income and pump that towards rent, buy a few tools. It it certainly wasn't enough to really capitalize a grown-up business, but it was enough at least to give us some breathing room that we could pay the rent, pay the utilities, and maybe buy a used tool every couple of months and then see how uh, that engaged with the market. Uh, Were people using it? Were people paying to use it? Were people paying to take classes? So we grew very incrementally, and only when I knew uh, there were people who wanted to use a new resource, then we would buy it. And sometimes we would do our own micro-crowdfunding campaigns. So if we wanted an expensive plasma cutter, which is a way to cut steel or metals with superheated air, a new one was about 2,000 bucks, and so I asked, all of our community, and maybe we had 60 or 70 members at the time. I said, would anyone pay me 100 bucks for 10 hours of use on this? Uh, and uh, once 20 people said yes, and we bought it. So, the, And they effectively prepaid the use of the tool. So that's a very slow and conservative way to do it. And if you aren't capitalized, if you don't have a big uh, investment chunk or a big loan or, or money saved up, I do recommend that's a safe way to go uh, because you have time to pivot uh, if if things aren't working out. Um, what we provide for our members is a low barrier to access uh, and entry insofar as if someone wants to create a business where they're making um, really special pens out of uh, metal and resin, which is what Chris Cannon uh, of Cannon Pens does, he didn't have to buy all of his own vacuum equipment, casting equipment, uh, metal cutting equipment. He could use ours for a low monthly membership fee. So uh, we do represent a kind of distributed, shared uh, investment of capital. So we have maybe 400, 500K worth of uh, equipment um, that we rent out for you know, about 100 bucks a month. So that's an easy way for someone to come in, see if they can make a few products, see if they can sell them. And then once they have a market base, once they have a product, once they have a business, then they can decide, okay, now I'm comfortable taking a loan out for 50K over four years to buy my own laser cutter to do my own engraving or things like that. And we've seen this happen. We've 
three or four different people have bought their own multi tens of thousand dollar laser cutters after using ours for a couple of years. And, and as a result, one of the laser cutter companies, Trotec, gave us a big discount on ours because they said, hey, we, we appreciate the, uh, the good word you're spreading and, and evangelizing this uh, culture of kind of democratized entrepreneurship. Who are some of the people uh, that you turned to early on to help you get going? You know, that's a good question. This was an entirely grassroots, bootstrapped organization. By that, I mean I started it, sought out friends, volunteers, and members. Um, quickly, about 20 to 30 core people showed up within the first three, six months of advertising on Craigslist. And those folks really, uh, it became a, a kind of social club as well as a burgeoning business and a community workshop. So. Got to say, it was it was our community of volunteers and members for six, seven, eight years. And then thankfully, about five years back, we met Casey McCarty and Matt Hatcher, who came on as volunteers, uh, but quickly distinguished themselves uh, way above and beyond what any person would rationally volunteer. Uh, and uh, Casey is now our chief operating officer, and Matt is our chief facilities officer. So two of my dearest friends have now become our uh, uh, officers in the business. What would you say the uh, the biggest "Hey, don't do that" would be? You know, I, I'm not sure any don'ts come to mind, but um, uh, but some do's do come to mind. So do make a very clear-eyed, cold, hard business plan. Uh, really, do ask yourself, what are my products? Um, how much can I charge? How much do I realistically think the market will buy? Uh, and and there are a lot of traps where. People will say, oh, there are a million people in Columbus. If only 1% of them buy my product, and that, that, that's a little bit diluted. Do look at how much time you can spend on a side business or a full-time business for, let's say, two years, three years, realistically, um, before getting burnt out or uh, losing friends and family and intimate partners. Really appreciate you oh, my pleasure, taking Jordan. the time. This was lots of fun. Along the tour Alex gave before our conversation, I met Will Nickley, a member of the Idea Foundry. We sat down to discuss how he utilizes the organization and how his career path has unfolded over the past decade. Idea Foundry is a great base of operations for me for a number of projects I'm involved with. As an industrial designer by profession, um, first and foremost, Idea Foundry is a playground because there are a lot of great tools here that let me um, create prototypes and um, uh, supplementary material for the contract design work that I do. Safety Third Racing is a, is a drone team that I started um, out east when I was living with my wife near New York City. Um, I teach classes for Safety Third Racing here at Idea Foundry on how to build and design um, racing quadcopters using virtual reality to pilot them. It's a lot of fun. Um, another project I'm involved with here is called uh, Local Tech Heroes. It's a not-for-profit I started with my office mate, Chris Kling, who is someone I met at Idea Foundry because there's no shortage of amazing people with great projects here. It's technology outreach programming for kids in Columbus who don't already have access to great robotics and virtual reality and design and 3D printing programming in their schools. At the time, when I graduated in 2010, um, there weren't a whole lot of full-time design jobs available for, for fresh graduates. And um, so one of the things I, I did was uh, start a mini design consultancy here in Columbus with some of the people I graduated with. And we did everything from actual traditional industrial design work to um, like web development and advertising, like Photoshop jobs. I mean, really anything that people needed us to do that was remotely related to 
design skills that you might pick up in, in school. So this was sort of like a, an alternative. If we want to stay in our field, we're going to have to make up our own work for this kind of stuff and, and do this hustle. If you can't find a, an internship or a full-time position uh, that is exactly what you want, certainly go out and find a job that will pay the bills, but start looking for someone who needs help or some business in Columbus who could benefit from the skills that you've learned in school. Um, a lot of the design work that um, I managed to do within that first year or two outside of school um, wasn't for big companies or design firms. A lot of it was for um, smaller startups or, or companies in Columbus who really just didn't have designers or design capability on staff, but could certainly benefit from that kind of thing. It's not called the hustle for nothing. There are tons of considerations when putting your ideas into practice and it all stalls out if you don't first organize and put in the immense amount of effort needed to get going. But you have support in your journey. You just need to reach out and take advantage of it. That's what we're here for. Thanks for tuning in. And again, subscribe to one of our channels, Stitcher, Google Play, iTunes, Podbean, Facebook, or YouTube to keep hearing advice on how to launch your creative career. Take care. Our theme song, Mr. Boogaloo by the Juanitos, Creative Commons license from the Free Music Archive.